So this is a very quick and dirty and probably overly simplified overview of cortical anatomy, but I wanted to uh, give you some sort of overview of cortical anatomy, and, uh, and we'll also talk a little bit about the thalamus in order for you to at least be familiar with some of the terms and syndromes that might come up on either an in-service examination or the board examination. So let's go through cortical anatomy first, and I'm going to organize this by lobes. Why don't we start and dive right into the frontal lobe, which I think is one of the more intimidating aspects of uh, cortical anatomy because it involves processes that are very complex and arguably a lot of the processes that make us human. In the frontal lobe, you have the primary motor cortex. Uh, that's uh, Brodmann's area four, if you're keeping track of that. And this contains uh, motor neurons that have direct projections downward uh, through uh, the brainstem and spinal cord, uh, and they eventually synapse on anterior horn cells in the anterior spinal cord. And as we all remember, the uh, primary motor cortex is somatotopically organized in the form of the cortical homunculus, uh, starting at the... Uh, frontal operculum just above the sylvian fissure, where you have uh, motor projections to the uh, tongue, pharynx, and, and, uh, and mouth, uh, and then moving up uh, to uh, projections to the face, then uh, to the hand, then arm and shoulder. Uh, finally, uh, just over the frontal convexity, uh, you have uh, projections to the hip and leg, and finally, projections to the uh, feet and toes and to the perineal region. Uh, so that's the homunculus, and uh, I'm sure you're all aware of that. And uh, we often see uh, uh, this manifest in stroke syndromes, for example, uh, anterior cerebral artery uh, strokes, which involve the edge of the frontal convexity around the falx, often have uh, leg weakness. Uh, while uh, MCA strokes, uh, which tend to involve the middle of the homunculus, prominently have face and arm weakness. Just anterior to the uh, motor area are the premotor areas, and there are a few different premotor areas, and these are all involved in motor planning. There are ventral and dorsolateral premotor cortexes, and then there's also the supplementary motor area, or SMA, and uh, the SMA is important in initiating motor sequences that are learned, so complex sequences of motor activity that are learned. And classically, from a clinical perspective, seizures that involve the supplementary motor area often have bilateral brief tonic seizures, for example, often asymmetric uh, tonic seizures. The frontal lobe also includes the uh, frontal eye fields, and these are important because the frontal eye fields uh, project to the uh, motor areas in the brainstem uh, to coordinate uh, both horizontal and vertical gaze. And uh, as we all remember, the frontal eye field in one hemisphere will generally cause the eyes to flect to the opposite direction. So uh, if you have gaze paresis, for example, with your uh, forced gaze deviation to the right, that means that there is either overactivity of the left frontal eye fields or underactivity of the right frontal eye fields. And finally, of course, in the frontal lobe, we have Broca's area. Then there is a huge region called the prefrontal cortex, and this is a complex region, but I'm going to break it down into three subregions. And those include the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex over the frontal convexity, uh, 
the mesial frontal uh, cortex, and then the orbitofrontal cortex. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is most important for executive functioning, and the mnemonic that I was taught was SOAP, S-O-A-P. So processes like sequencing, organization, abstraction, and planning are really important uh, in executive functioning. The orbitofrontal cortex is along the inferior aspect of the frontal lobe and usually in involves the frontal poles as well. And the orbitofrontal cortex is important for social behavior, inhibition, uh, some degree of judgment, emotional regulation, things like that. And uh, one way to remember why the orbitofrontal cortex is important is to consider the case of Phineas Gage, who famously had a railway spike that projected through the orbitofrontal cortex. And he reportedly or historically developed these symptoms of uh, behavioral discontrol, disinhibition, and problems with emotional regulation. Finally, there is the mesial frontal cortex, which also includes the anterior aspect of the cingulate cortex. And the mesial frontal cortex is vertically oriented, and so my mnemonic for this is that this is important for our get-up-and-go. So it's vertically oriented, and it's important for our get-up-and-go. This has important connections with the limbic system as well, and so it's important for motivation, goal-oriented behavior, and initiation of motor activities. And when people have severe dysfunction of mesial frontal cortex, they can have syndromes as bad as akinetic mutism. Uh, seizures that arise in the mesial frontal cortex do the opposite, and we often see that mesial frontal onset seizures have a prominent hypermotor component to them. So that's uh, one way to remember. So to summarize, dorsolateral prefrontal is executive functioning, that is sequencing, organization, abstraction, and planning, or SOAP. The orbitofrontal co cortex, just remember Phineas Gage, and uh, that is important for emotional regulation, uh, uh, social appropriateness, judgment, inhibition, things like that. And finally, the mesial frontal cortex, which is important for goal-oriented behavior and motivation, and that is your get-up-and-go. Moving backward, we can talk about the parietal lobe. And of course, just posterior to the central sulcus is the primary somatosensory cortex. Uh, so uh, the uh, part of the parietal lobe that uh, uh, receives uh, sensory information from the ventral posterior nuclei of the thalamus. Just posterior to that are the uh, secondary or associative uh, somatosensory cortex, and this will often integrate uh, sensi sensory information as well. And then if you have dysfunction of associative uh, uh, somatosensory cortex, then you can have very uh, uh, prominent uh, what we call parietal signs on exam. So you may have difficulty with things like uh, recognition of bilateral simultaneous stimulation or, or, or neglect. You can have stereognosis, you can have graphesthesia, uh, um, and you can have uh, dysfunction of uh, two-point discrimination. There is some importance or some patterns of dominant versus non-dominant parietal associative dysfunction, and I think this is really important. Non-dominant, usually right, but non-dominant parietal hemisphere dysfunction can give you things like hemispatial neglect. So we often see in right hemisphere strokes, for example, that there are very prominent uh, neglect syndromes on the left side. It can give you uh, anosognosia, so the inability to recognize your own illness. So it's important that non-dominant 
parietal dysfunction classically is associated with anosognosia. So the two really to remember are neglect and anosognosia. In dominant parietal hemisphere dysfunction, apraxia, and in more severe uh, circumstances, especially if it involves the angular gyrus, you can get something called Gerstmann syndrome. So Gerstmann syndrome classically localizes to the dominant parietal or parietal temporal uh, junction, uh, the angular gyrus, and this has four features, finger agnosia, acalculia, agraphia, and left-right. Again, just to summarize, dominant hemisphere dysfunction, you can get idiomotor apraxia uh, or other types of apraxia, and you can get Gerstmann syndrome. And again, just to summarize again, Gerstmann syndrome is finger agnosia, acalculia, agraphia, and left-right disorientation. With bilateral parietal dysfunction, especially if this projects a little more posterior to the parietal occipital regions, you can have problems with visual uh, processing and visual perception. And in the most severe form, you get something called Balint syndrome, which is B-A-L-I-N-T, Balint syndrome. And it has a classic triad of optic ataxia, oculomotor apraxia, and simultanagnosia. Optic ataxia is the difficulty in reaching or grasping for objects that you uh, perceive visually. Oculomotor apraxia is a problem with eye movements, so it's a problem with voluntary eye movements. There's an apraxia in moving your eyes. And simultanagnosia is the inability to perceive more than a single item in your visual field at the same time. So the difficulty in perceiving simultaneous or, or multiple things in, in your visual field at the same time. We'll move to the temporal lobe. Uh, the temporal lobe has a lot of activities and they can be divided into the lateral and medial temporal regions. Uh, it's much more complicated than that, but simply uh, broken down can be lateral and medial temporal. The lateral temporal lobe has the primary auditory cortex located in Heschel's transverse gyrus, which is aspect of the temporal lobe just below the sylvian fissure. Um, of course, in the dominant hemisphere, there's Wernicke's area, which is typically in the dominant superior temporal gyrus, uh, and usually in the posterior aspect of that. The medial temporal lobe, of course, includes the limbic and paralimbic structures. Uh, so these structures that are important in the limbic system. Dysfunction of mesial temporal structures tends to lead to, lead to amnestic syndromes. And so many of uh, the syndromes that are associated with bilateral mesial temporal dysfunction, like Alzheimer's disease, for example, uh, like the consequences of herpes simplex encephalitis, like prolonged or severe temporal lobe epilepsy or trauma or surgery to the mesial temporal lobes, they can all lead to problems with amnesia. Problems with the lateral temporal lobe can lead to language dysfunction and, uh, and syndromes such as semantic dementia, which is a, a problem with the loss of word meaning. Now we'll move to the occipital lobe, and the occipital lobe has the primary visual cortex. The primary visual cortex is on the banks of the calcarine fissure and contains the somatotopic organization of the primary inputs from your visual fields. And then there are visual association areas. And these fall into two categories. There is the 
dorsal pathway, which is sometimes known as the wear pathway, and this to the parietal lobe. And this is important in determining perception of motion, depth, shifting gaze, and spatial orientation. And it's really dysfunction of these pathways that leads to the Balint syndrome that we talked about earlier, where you have problems with moving your eyes, you have problems with processing spatial information, and you have problems with reaching or acting upon visual information, such as in the case of optic ataxia. The ventral pathway, that pathway that projects to the temporal lobe, is often known as the what pathway. So this is how we determine what we're seeing or process what we're seeing. Dysfunction of this pathway can lead to things like visual agnosia, color agnosia, achromatopsia, that is the difficulty to perceive color, and prosopagnosia, so the difficulty to process faces. And classically, it's important to know for exams that prosopagnosia is often secondary to lesions of the fusiform gyrus, right more than left or sometimes both. I just wanted to move a little bit on to the process of memory. So there are several steps involved in memory and learning. And there are four main steps that happen in memory, and those include registration, which involves us being able to pay attention to what we're perceiving, encoding, which is a process that typically involves the limbic circuits and basically is putting that information into our declarative memory. Consolidation, which involves projections diffusely throughout the brain and is a process that takes days or even longer. And then retrieval, and retrieval involves pathways between the frontal and temporal cortex. When we think about memory, we have a few different types. We have explicit or declarative memory, and this is knowledge that requires conscious recall or acquisition. And so what you're learning right now and what you're listening to right now involves declarative memory. And this is when we're uh, trying to remember something on a test, for example. And there are two main types. There's semantic memory, that is just knowledge of facts. And then there's episodic memory, and that is really memory of past events uh, that have been encoded and stored. And this can include both long-term and short-term episodic memory. Then, of course, we have implicit memory, that is memory that is not declarative, and we do not recall consciously, but it's really important. And types of implicit memory include procedural memory, for example. Uh, and this tends to involve basal ganglia, supplementary motor areas, associative motor areas, premotor areas, things like that. Of course, we do have working memory. This is the memory that is involved in executing a particular function at that time. And this really relates to attentional pathways, uh, to, so to frontal subcortical pathways that are involved in attention. I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the hippocampal pathways, and in particular, the circuit of PAPES. And the circuit of PAPES is a pathway between mesial temporal structures and related structures and it is really important in long-term potentiation and learning. And so it's uh, something that's really important in acquisition of knowledge and learning. And dysfunction of this pathway can impair uh, declarative memory and can, to some extent, impair learning, especially of declarative items. And so we can start anywhere on this circuit, but I will start in the hippocampus. And so in the hippocampus, if you start in the dentate nucleus, this includes projections to both CA3 and CA1 parts of the corna aminus, which is in the hippocampus, 
and then the, to the subiculum. Any of these can project to the fornix, which is the main outflow of the hippocampus. Then there are projections from the fornix all the way around to the mammillary bodies. And remember, mammillary bodies are important in Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, the amnestic syndrome seen there. From the mammillary bodies, there is projections from the mammalothalamic tract to the anterior nucleus of the thalamus. From the anterior nucleus of the thalamus, there are projections to the cingulate. And from the cingulate, there are projections to the frontal neocortex and to entorhinal cortex. And then the circuit continues back. So there are projections from both the neocortex, entorhinal cortex, back down to the dentate, and then to the CA1 and 3 regions of the hippocampus, and the cycle continues. So you have an intrinsic circuit within the hippocampus, and then you have projections out of the hippocampus from the fornix through to the mammillary bodies, then to the anterior nucleus of the thalamus, to the cingulate, to diffuse projections, and then back to the hippocampus. And that's the circuit of PAPES. Let's move on to the thalamus. And I'm going to start with the disclaimer uh, that I am not a neuroscientist. I am not the world's expert, expert in thalamic anatomy, but I simply want to break down the thalamus in a way that is digestible for preparation for an examination such as an in-service or certification examination. I do want to say that if you want to read more about the thalamus, this may st- serve as a structure or scaffolding for you to build on your understanding. And finally, I do acknowledge that there may be some errors and that there is some debate about functional and anatomical uh, breakdown of the thalamus, and there are some variable terminology that's used. But I think in general, uh, the things that I'll share with you during this section are reasonable and things that can allow you to build your knowledge by further reading. The thalamus is divided into a number of different functional regions and has areas of a number of different functional subtypes. The ones that we probably know the best are the sensory relay nuclei. And we have a couple of different somatosensory relay nuclei that are located in the ventroposterior region of the thalamus. And the two main thalamic nuclei that have somatosensory relay are the ventroposterolateral nucleus, which is the VPL, and the ventroposteromedian nucleus, which is the VPM. And the VPL is an important relay nucleus for somatic sensation from the body, from the contralateral body. And the ventroposteromedian, the VPM nucleus, mainly relays information from the trigeminal nucleus. And so that is information from the contralateral face. There is actually a smaller parvocellular nucleus within the VPM that actually relays taste information and projects that to the anterior insula. So the VPL and the VPM take somatosensory and facial uh, sensory information from the body and face, and they project that to the primary sensory cortex within the postcentral gyrus. The other two main sensory relay nuclei that you are aware of and should be aware of are the medial and lateral geniculate nuclei. The lateral geniculate nucleus, if you remember your optic pathways, take information from the anterior optic pathways and project it to the occipital cortex. The medial geniculate nucleus takes information from the inferior colliculus and projects that to the primary auditory cortex, which is in Heschel's gyrus or the transverse gyrus in the superior temporal region, and this is important for audition. So, 
we have to review VPL and VPM, which are important for somatosensory information, the parvocellular region of the BPM, which is important for taste, and then the lateral geniculate nucleus for vision, and the medial geniculate nucleus for auditory information. So those are probably the main sensory relay nuclei that you may see come up on examinations and are things that you should have a good sense of. Next, we'll talk about the ventral nuclei. And a couple that you need to be aware of are the ventral lateral nucleus and the ventral anterior nucleus. The ventral lateral nucleus, also known as the VL nucleus, takes information from the globus pallidus and projects that to the precentral gyrus, so to the primary motor cortex. So the ventral lateral nucleus is the nucleus of the thalamus that integrates information between the basal ganglia and the primary motor cortex. And when you're drawing your direct and indirect pathways, when you draw the thalamus, mainly what you're drawing there is the ventral lateral nucleus, although maybe other nuclei are involved as well. The ventral anterior nucleus, mainly it controls eye movements. So it carries information from subcortical and brainstem structures and projects those to the frontal eye fields. And this is important for certain types of directed eye movements. So again, those cortical relay nuclei, the ventral lateral nucleus is really important in integrating information between the basal ganglia and the primary motor cortex. And the ventral anterior nucleus is mainly important for frontal eye fields. Finally, there are a number of association nuclei I'm not going to talk about all of them, but a couple that come up on examinations are in, and are important in clinical practice include the anterior nucleus of the thalamus and the medial dorsal, also known as the dorsal medial nucleus. So the anterior nucleus of the thalamus is part of the circuit of PAPES, which we've talked about earlier. So it carries information from the mammillary body through the mammalothalamic tract and projects that up to the cingulate gyrus, and then later there are projections to cortical regions and then back to the hippocampus. So the anterior nucleus of the thalamus is really important in long-term potentiation, in memory, and of course it plays a role in epilepsy because the circuit of PAPES is an important circuit in potentiation involved in seizures. And so we do have procedures now where we can stimulate the anterior nucleus of the thalamus and modulate uh, risk of seizures. The dorsal median or medial dorsal nucleus of the thalamus has projections that are, has inputs from the subcortical structures, including the limbic system and other regions, and sends projections to the prefrontal cortex. And so if you remember, as we discussed, the prefrontal cortex has a number of different tasks, including executive functioning, working memory, attention and concentration, and social appropriateness, um, and lesions of the dorsal median or medial dorsal nucleus of the thalamus can lead to a number of different disexecutive syndromes. And one clinical pearl is that the medial dorsal nucleus of the thalamus is often affected in Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, where there's an amnestic syndrome, but there's also a disexecutive syndrome that goes along with that. I'll very briefly mention two other association nuclei within the thalamus. The first is the midline nuclear group, sometimes known as the paramedian nuclear group. And these have projections to diffuse areas, but include the medial frontal and other parts of the prefrontal cortex. 
And so paramedian thalamic dysfunction or midline thalamic dysfunction can lead to apathy, disinterest, and in the most severe cases, akinetic mutism. So sometimes when we see people with thalamic damage from infarcts or other things that are having uh, decreased levels of interactiveness, one of the possibilities is there is dysfunction in the midline or paramedian nuclear group. Finally, I'll briefly mention the pulvinar, which is a nucleus in the thalamus that accepts information from the superior colliculus and projects to posterior aspects of the head, including in the parietal, temporal, and occipital lobes, and that plays an important role in complex visual processing. The last thing to mention about the thalamus is that it's important to understand that there is a thalamic reticular nucleus. This is sometimes also known as the reticular nucleus of the thalamus, or RTN, and it is essentially a thin shell of neurons surrounding the core thalamic nuclei. This is important because it probably is an important mediator of arousal and alertness, and it does this by interacting with other thalamic neurons and with cortical projections. And it is important because it does play a role in the generation of sleep spindles. So the reticular nucleus of the thalamus is probably important in the generation of sleep spindles, and its dysfunction probably plays a role in the generation of generalized spike wave discharges, such as the 3 hertz spike wave discharges seen in childhood absence epilepsy. So because I believe in repetition, let's take one more tour through the main thalamic nuclei. There are three groups and then the reticular uh, nuclei. So the three groups are the sensory relay nuclei, the cortical relay nuclei, and association nuclei. The sensory relay nuclei include the VPL, which is contralateral body sensation, the VPN, which is contralateral face sensation, the parvocellular region of the VPM, which is probably important for taste, the medial geniculate nucleus, which is important for hearing, and the lateral geniculate nucleus, which is important for vision. The cortical relay nuclei include the ventral lateral nucleus, which carries projections out from the basal ganglia and sends them to the primary motor cortex. And so this is important in mediation of movement and plays an essential role in your direct and indirect pathways. And the ventral anterior nucleus of the thalamus, which is more important for eye movements. Finally, there are a few association nuclei that we have to talk about, and those include the anterior nucleus of the thalamus, important because it is part of the circuit of PAPES, and it is the main stimulation target in epilepsy, in deep brain stimulation of the epilepsy, although other uh, nuclei in the thalamus are stimulated as well. The dorsal medial or medial dorsal nucleus of the thalamus, which has projections to the frontal prefrontal cortex, and therefore plays important roles in memory and executive functioning. And the medial dorsal nucleus of the thalamus is the one that is dysfunctional in Korsakoff syndrome. And the paramedian thalamic nuclear group, uh, this has projections to mesial frontal and other regions in the frontal lobe, and seems to be important in task-specific behavior, level of arousal, dysfunction of this region can lead to apathy or even achematic mutism. Finally, the pulvinar, and the pulvinar is important in vision. It carries projections from the superior colliculus to a number of cortical regions that are involved in visual processing. And then, of course, surrounding all these main nuclei is the reticular nucleus of the thalamus, which is important in alerting response. It is important in the generation of sleep spindles, 
And it probably is part of the dysfunction uh, that relates to the generation of abnormal waveforms in the form of 3 hertz generalized spike wave discharges. So we have reviewed thalamic and cortical anatomy. I realize that there may be some errors or omissions here, but overall, this is a general review of the important considerations in cortical and thalamic anatomy. Please feel free to leave comments on this uh, section if you feel like it could be improved, but I thought this was at least a quick and dirty scaffolding or framework on which you can build your further reading. Thank you for learning about cortical academy. anatomy. Thanks for learning about the thalamus. thalamus.